And we're back with another episode of the Anarchist Experience, episode 214, a.k.a. season 3, episode 34, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I'm your host, Mr. Rich E. Rich, uh, going solo again, MC, although he joined us last time, uh, I was aware he was not going to be with us this week. Uh, He had some prior engagements to deal with, and uh, as time is short for me, uh, we weren't able to connect, so here I am doing another edition of Rich E. Rich Reads the news unlikely to be interrupted uh this week uh by mc so we'll just get on with it uh that means no call-in numbers podcast only um and here we go curated uh from hours and hours of reading headlines for you the best of the best uh washington can't solve our problems but civil society can headline there are two little problems with taxing the rich to pay for free everything Uh, Headline, Occupational Licensing, an Unnecessary Evil. Headline, uh, The Jevons Paradox and the Green New Deal. Headline, The Fear Mongers Are Wrong About Artificial Intelligence and Robots. Uh, Headline, Rapper Charged with Terrorism for Lyrics, Criticizing Police as Supreme Court Refuses to Protect Speech. And finally, Headline, The Feds Have Been Warehousing Wild Horses in Efforts to Preserve Them. All right, getting right into it. Washington can't solve our problems, but civil society can. Uh, A recent Gallup poll report revealed a paradox of today's national political debate. While a number of candidates on the campaign trail say more government will help solve the country's problems, people increasingly believe government itself is the number one problem. Further, Americans' trust in the federal government's ability to solve problems is at its lowest point in decades. This isn't surprising to those who believe in the power of independent problem solving. In fact, it's encouraging. For if people rely less on their national government, the more important civil society becomes. It's our local institutions, schools, churches, voluntary associations that are most likely to guide behavior and transform lives, not the wish list of politicians in Washington. Civil society taken for granted. America's commitment to civil society has been a hallmark of our country's exceptionalism. It's the intangible glue outside of government that binds us as a nation, and we must not take it for granted. Alex de Tocqueville observed in early 19th century America that one of the country's most remarkable aspects was the extraordinary participation of citizens in local governance and civil society. With much care and skill, power has been broken into fragments in the American township so that the maximum possible number of people have some concern with public affair, he wrote. Americans are incredibly generous, ranking fifth among 140 countries in the percentage who have volunteered with an organization. Although America today is vastly different, our strong traditions of local control, can-do attitude, and service to others remains a seminal characteristic of our country. This never stood out to me more than when I was an ambassador in Central Europe. It was very clear that donating money or volunteering time was simply not a natural or expected part of the culture. This observation is substantiated by research. As author Jeremy Beer had pointed out, the value of American philanthropy is equivalent to 5.5% of the national GDP, by far the highest in the world. No other country reaches 2% of GDP. 
When it comes to volunteering, Americans, too, are incredibly generous, ranking fifth among 140 countries in the percentage who had volunteered with an organization. Encouragingly, volunteering in the U.S. has hit a record high, with citizens volunteering nearly 6.9 billion hours, worth an estimated $167 billion in economic value, according to a 2018 report by the Corporation for National and Community Service. Independent Problem Solving we often see independent problem solving in times of crisis. Take, for instance, the Cajun Navy. Groups of boat owners who would voluntarily assist in search and rescue efforts following natural disasters in the South and have saved thousands of lives. Recently, in my home state of Wisconsin, a former, a former formed a badger army. A farm, goddamn, a farmer formed a badger army to bring supplies to Nebraska farmers impacted by flooding. Or take the need to curtail the opioid epidemic, which is prompting private voluntary solutions to help overcome drug addiction. One Midwestern company facing a worker shortage has started providing drug treatment programs to potential employees who test positive for drugs but still want a job. Citizens solving problems and improving their communities are at the heart of the Bradley Foundation's mission. Citizens solving problems and improving their communities are at the heart of the Bradley Foundation's mission. Our founders were successful 20th century industrialists who believed in the richness of community and culture that are the basis of a well-lived life. Today, we carry on that legacy by supporting organizations that strengthen the fabric of American society. Next month, the foundation will honor distinguished individuals whose achievements reflect the pillar of American exceptionalism, including civil society, which will host the annual Bradley Prizes. We look forward to honoring this year's recipients, author and publisher Roger Kimball, historian and journalist Jim Grant, and former federal judge Janice Rogers-Brown. Community and American Exceptionalism It's worth noting the poignant words of Judge Brown during a speech she once gave to the Federalist Society. Where government moves in, community retreats. Civil society disintegrates and our ability to control our own destiny atrophies. The result is families under siege, war in the streets, unapologetic expropriation of property, the precipitous decline of the rule of law, the rapid rise of corruption, the loss of civility, and the triumph of deceit. It's tempting for politicians to offer more government programs as a fix to society's problems. But it's families, social clubs, churches, and the like that have a greater and lasting impact on daily life. We must work to improve and sustain civil society in every way we can by encouraging self-governance and engaging in our communities. American exceptionalism depends on it. Uh, end of the article. This is one of those areas where I'll probably be accused of being more uh, capitalist than anarchist, uh, even though I, you know, you know, I self-describe as uh, an ANCAP, which combines the two perfectly harmoniously uh, because I'm not a big fan of uh volunteering or donating for the most part like I've, I've done my share uh in the past um, i've volunteered for organizations that i've been a part of uh and i've made you know uh, contributions to charitable organizations um but the the charity that i donated the most to was um wigs for kids and locks of love uh, mostly because it was something that i could donate to and, you know, get that happy, happy, joy, joy, feel good feelings about myself without actually having to part with any money. Uh, although I think I gave, I think I gave a financial donation with a couple of those, but either way, um, I'm not a big fan of, of either that, like my, my time, um, has value and I sell it to the highest bidder. 
regardless of how little that may be or how that how little that may seem at times um, that's basically how I operate so it's a it's a criticism um, that I'm aware of and it's a valid criticism um, but the the theme uh, remains that I don't need uh, help from the state to do things uh, and I believe that solutions can be done better privately um, and that you know, and and this article seems to suggest that solutions are done better at a local level um, than at a a federal level. I guess you know, Washington, Washington, get the hell out of problem solving um, because communities will come together, and that may be true. But sometimes um, I feel uh, like a free rider uh, when when some of these you know projects are going on around me, right? And I think that's. I think that tugs at the community emotions a lot more than the federal ones. Uh, and I have to logically block out those feelings uh, to to carry on with my life. Um, and the, the latest example of that here locally um, and spreading around the world is the uh, hashtag trash tag. Uh, I'm going to say nonsense, but for the, for the good of the earth, right? It's, you know, people are hashtagging, picking up trash around their local community and the happy, happy, joy, joy, goodwill feelings that come along with cleaning up your area. And they're doing that here locally, uh, in my area. And I, I personally, I want like, I want no part of it, right? I don't want to go out there. I don't need, you know, trash and litter, um, does not bug me as much as it bugs some other people. You know, it may, it may get to a point where I go, damn, that's a lot of trash. Uh, but as it stands right now, you know, like my house is clean. It may be cluttered, uh, but it's clean. And, you know, when I step out of my house and, and go into the public, you know, public areas, um, I don't really care how much, if someone misses the trash can, uh, I'm not up in arms about it, right? I'm not, I'm not bothered by, oh my God, oh my God, there's trash everywhere. Like what, what else, what will we do? Uh, you just, you just avoid it as much as you can, right? Like, you know, uh, my job at work, uh, for a handful of different jobs is to clean up, right? And so when I, when I clean up, uh, I do my job. Right, I get paid to clean them. I get paid to pick up trash. Uh, I'm not gonna, you know, on private property. I'm not gonna go out and do it on public property for free. Right, that's not not part of the deal. Uh, if the deal is that I'm, you know, taxed for public services, and part of those taxes is supposed to go towards, you know, maintenance and you know and and upkeep, well then my job is done. Right, like I've already I've already handled that. I don't want to go out and do more trash pickups. I don't want to do litter pickups. I don't care. Uh, I, I really that's part of it. I really just don't care about it. Right, you, you know, you see a piece of trash on the ground. You got your boots on. You just step on it or step over it, and move on. Uh, and if it gets to be too bad, you know, of a, of a of a situation, well, take a different route. Go a different way. Right, like I just I'm not bothered. I'm not bothered by it in the in in of the least. Um, we got to talking a little bit more about, you know, the, the trash buildup in the ocean and the pollution of the waters. Um, and, you know, I forget who I was talking to. I think it was just a customer that was hanging out for lunch and was pointing out, you know, the, the fact that all this pollutants are coming from like China and India and, you know, not all of it, but most of it. And he was right. You know, there, there's articles out there, st statistics to support that. Um, but when I see, you know, pictures of of turtles and whales and you know trash being uh 
caught in their stomach. I go, well, they're just stupid, right? Stupid for eating the trash, right? But it looks like a jellyfish. Well, that, that's their fault for not having a more discerning eye. And hopefully, you know, uh, evolutionary changes will f- help fix that in the future. Otherwise, go extinct like, every, like, like everything else should that, you know, doesn't, doesn't survive on its own. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to look at an article like this and go like, this makes me want to volunteer more, right? Even, um, the, the biggest organization that, you know, I've, I've done volunteer work for, um, and me and MC talk about it occasionally on here, but I, I won't mention it by name at the time. Um, like there was, I, I, it, it was supposed to be like unconditional giving and volunteering to give back to the community. And I was like, no, there, there's definitely some conditions, right? I've done, I've done enough giving back to the community and unconditional volunteering. Um, you know, when I, when I first uh, joined the community, um, uh, but now like, I'm, I'm a specialist, I, I'm an expert in, you know, certain areas, uh, in, in which we volunteer and I stick to those and no, I'm not coming to meetings. Uh, and no, I'm not doing it all right. I, the, these are the, these are the days that I can volunteer, um, that won't, that won't affect my work schedule. So I'll be there for those. Uh, but everything else, you got to find somebody else, right? I'm not, I'm not giving you a commitment to the entire process here. Uh, just what's, just what's convenient for me. Um, and I do that because, well, uh, I'm good enough to do it, right? I, I want to say I'm the best, but I'm not really the best. Like the, the, the people that train me are probably better at it than me. Uh, and the people that came after me probably are decent enough to, to get the job done. Um, but when, you know, back when I was doing it, it was like, nope, th- I'm, I, I'm a specialist. This is what I do. And I do it very, very well. Um, and you're lucky to have me uh, for free, you know, f- limited time, but for free. I show up, I get the job done and I leave and that's it. Uh, and uh, when, when not in those communities, I expect to be compensated for that. Uh, so this, this whole notion of, of problem solving um, at the community level through volunteer work, nah, just you know, solve it at the community level because you don't want to pay federal taxes on it. Solve it at the individual level first uh, and move on from there. But there's there's no reason to there's no reason to pass laws uh, or get you know state funding or interference uh, in anything. You just you do it on your own or you get your help of your neighbors or whomever. And those that are worthy uh, should be paid for their time and for their efforts. Uh, and to not do so is a disservice uh, to them, right? You know, and I don't I don't like to. I guess how do I put this? One of the things that we're lacking in the community um, is a, a sense of value because everyone uh, expects things to be done within the community for free or for lesser than, right? Rather than paying people what they're worth, um, everyone expects uh, handouts and helpouts and hookups uh, as opposed to, hey, you're good at this. I want to pay you for this and do it. And it, it it's, a, it's a mindset uh, that I believe that keeps a lot of us, uh, self-included, from making more than we can and earning what we're worth simply because, um, there's a reliance on the community, right? Uh, like I don't want to, let's, let's only serve our community. Um, uh, and then everyone expects it to be done for free. And to me, that is nonsense. Uh, I think I've rambled long enough. So moving on headline, there are two little problems with taxing the rich to pay for free everything. Uh, no super wealthy individual or household is going to pay billions in additional taxes when 10 to $20 million will purchase political adjustment. The 2020 election cycle has begun, and a popular campaign promise is free everything. 
paid for by the new taxes on the super wealthy. Who doesn't like free stuff? Who will vote for whomever offers them free stuff? No wonder it's a popular campaign promise. As even the most self-absorbed American voter has a latent street-savvy awareness that nothing is truly free. The other popular campaign promise is to tax the rich to pay for the proposed free programs. Proposals to tax the rich feed off the growing awareness that the financial wealth created since 2000 has largely flowed to the very top of the wealth power pyramid, and so it's payback time. Tax those who have pocketed the lion's share of income and wealth gains. Fair enough, right? Even the super-rich publicly affirm that the super-wealthy should pay at least the same percentage of federal tax as their employees. Public pronouncements are, of course, good PR. But the real issue is what will the super-wealthy do behind closed doors to protect their wealth from additional taxation? There are two issues here. One is that the wealthy already pay most of the federal income tax. And second is the compelling cost-benefit of funding political adjustment to the new taxes. If one has a taste for facts, it turns out the U.S. federal tax system is highly progressive. The 1% pay the highest tax rates. Uh, CBO chart below. See CBO chart below uh, in the article in the show notes. And about 37% of all federal income tax. The top 5% pay almost 60% of all federal income tax. Note Social Security payroll taxes are not income taxes. Most wage earners pay more payroll taxes than they do income taxes. A good source for this sort of data is the Congressional Budget Office report. The CBO data is noteworthy for including all income, not just wages, capital gains, business income, and government transfers, social security, social welfare programs, etc. The new idea is current. The new idea in current tax the rich proposals is to increase taxes on the super wealthy, mega millionaires and billionaires. Given the outsized gains secured by these mega wealthy folks, it makes sense to nail them for the tax revenues needed to pay for more free stuff. At this point, let's reacquaint ourselves with the enormous size of the federal expenditures. Roughly $4.75 trillion annually out of a GDP of about $20 trillion. State and local governments spend another $3.25 trillion for total government expenditures of about $8 trillion. Total personal income is around $10 trillion a year, with the top 1%, about 1.4 million people, getting about $2 trillion of this personal income. Out of this, they pay $538 billion in federal income tax. So say some new tax law was actually able to capture 50% of all this income. That would be half. That would total $250 billion. A nice chunk of change, but hardly enough to fund a trillion or two in additional free programs. Since this income is already being taxed at a 34% rate according to the nonpartisan CBO, jacking the rate from 34% to 50 is only 16% more or an additional $80 billion in tax revenues. Look at the chart for current federal expenditures and then reckon the impact of an initial $80 billion. It's a drop in the bucket, baby. Jacking the top tax rate to 70% on the super wealthy would only raise a total of $180 billion. A nice boost, but hardly enough to fund trillion-dollar increases in federal spending. This brings us to the second reality. It's much cheaper to buy political adjustments to the new taxes via lobbying and campaign contributions than paying an extra $180 billion. A mere $10 million will buy a great deal of political adjustment, and $100 million will get pretty much whatever you need in the way of political adjustment. 
The list of special dispensations and obscure tax code loopholes is endless. The wealth can be protected in a philanthropic capitalist family trust or an overseas holding company or taxed at a much lower rate for creating jobs in America or equivalent political cover. The way to escape a 70% tax rate via political adjustment is truly infinite. No super wealthy individual or household is going to pay billions in additional taxes when a fraction of that will purchase political adjustments. From the point of view of the super wealthy, two-thirds of whom are self-made via building businesses, they already pay enough taxes, and they have the wherewithal to get politicos to agree with them. Here are two little problems with taxing the rich to pay for trillions of dollars in new freebies. Number one, taxing the super rich won't really move the needle much when the federal government spends $4.7 trillion annually, and trying to, two, trying to double the tax rate they pay from 35 to 70% will only push them to increase their spending on political adjustment that costs a fraction of the proposed taxes they will pay if they do nothing. End of the article. This is one of those unfortunate articles uh, written for morons who don't understand it and can't comprehend the implications of it anyway. Uh, And I'm looking at you, Bernie and AOC, uh, simply because it's a it's a uh, practical, it's a pragmatic approach uh, to the issues uh, rather than striking at the root. Uh, and that being taxation is theft, goddammit. Uh, and we can, we can shout that from the rooftops all day long, um, and get nowhere. Uh, or we can, you know, go through articles like this and also get nowhere. So, so it's pick your poison and go to spin your wheels in place, uh, basically to get nothing done. Um, but it's nice to have these, uh, to, to hopefully move some people a little bit further away from that nonsense, um, for the very, very infinitesimally small few people who can understand this. Because when you when you say, tell most people this, uh, they don't care or they don't understand it, right? They 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 still want they still want the free stuff, um, and they still don't know how it's going to get paid for. Like if not the super rich, who's going to pay for all your free stuff? And the answer is the middle class, right? Maybe or nobody, and that's the way it should be. But then how do you get them to vote, uh, you know, to, to, to elect you to give them all their free stuff. And I will say that not a political guy, right? Like I, I keep myself out of it. Um, but it amazes me at how effective a strategy this is. And yet the party of principle, the libertarians, um, don't utilize it at all. Right? Like if you want to put a libertarian in office, uh, you changed policy or you at least uh, put forth a front of providing stuff for people to get the votes. Um, and then you stab them in the back later, like like every other politician does. Uh, and it seems to me that, you know, the, the party of principle is unwilling to, to take the steps necessary uh, to, to make something like that happen. And, and good for them um, for doing it, right? Because, you know, you wouldn't want to have a party of principle violating principles, uh, but then they all they, they always pretend like they want to get into office as well, right? It's like, you know, pick your, you pick your poison, right? Do you want to be the party of principle or do you want to get elected to office? Because if you want to get elected to office, the formula is clear. Overpromise, underdeliver, get reelected doing the same, right? It works for the Republicans, it works for the Democrats, um, and it would work for any other party that, that, that was able to pull it off effectively. Um, 
But when you try to get people to elect you based off not giving them anything um, and telling them to, like, you know, pull themselves up by the bootstraps, um, you're, you're setting yourself up for loss, and which is fine, right? If, if you, you know, depending on what your goal is, and if your goal is just to be the party of principle and to, you know, put forth the message of freedom and liberty, great. Uh, but then I, I don't want to hear the, you know, the notion of, well, we have to get more libertarians elected office, right? That's, that's out of the question, um, if you're going to be the party of principle. And so when, you know, so when articles like this come forward and people, you know, and people see it and they go like, well, how, how then do I get my free stuff? Um, uh, and the, the, the pragmatic solution, um, is or the truth I should say is you're not going to get it. No matter what, you're not going to get it. Uh, somewhere down the line, you know, the the uh, the bill comes due and the super rich, the ultra wealthy, the billionaires, the millionaires are not going to be the ones paying for it. Right. When every place else runs out of food, uh, they're going to be the ones on the private jet getting the hell out of there or, uh, you know, having the, the stock of food and nutrition required to survive uh, the the. Uh, the apocalypse like in venezuela right like the you know it's poor people who are trying to figure out how to how to cook uh zoo animals and rats uh to 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 make ends meet it's not the it's not the ultra wealthy they're gone they're long gone uh somewhere else somewhere else entirely or you know or pulling the strings as much as they can uh, with whatever coup was supposed to happen this week so if you and 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 again therein lies the problem the the people who want the free stuff uh, aren't affected by the, the by this poor information right they they still want it they don't understand that no matter what they're not going to get it and even if they got it they still end up paying for it in the long run uh, because it you know when the bill comes due they're the ones holding the bag and so when like I said in the beginning this article is written for basically nobody because you know they'll they'll still clamor for it they won't get it and the people that do understand it uh, that do understand the the truth about taxation and how unnecessary it is uh, evil uh, how evil it is necessary or not and I'm gonna say not um, they don't they don't need this article to like oh yeah that's that's why taxes that yeah we should not be paying for free stuff by uh, by taxing rich people because the rich people they just they just won't pay there's not enough of them to go around right the 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 principled members the the print the principled individuals that see this article are the ones going well we shouldn't tax anybody because that's unfair and immoral right and you know and that's that should be the end of it right taxation is theft shout it again from the rooftops uh and the, the 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 people who should move their position based on this article won't understand it like it just, it's not even, you know, it's not even written in a language that they can comprehend. Um, it's just, where's my free stuff? And, you know, won't somebody pay for it? it this came up recently again, and I believe the, the news story's a few years old at this point, right? But it was, uh, it's a it's an example of this mentality, right? It was like um, some, uh, some homeowner got robbed and they killed the robber on the way out. And the news was interviewing the, the, the burglar or robber's family. And they're, you know, like he was a good kid. And, you know, how else is he going to pay for his stuff if he doesn't steal it from people? You know, like they were defending his, his thievery as the way that they make money in that neighborhood. Right. Like you, you, you were never going to convince 
that those people, right, quote unquote, those people, uh, that stealing is wrong because it's already built in uh, to to their psyche that that's how you pay for them. That's how you get your, uh, you know, your food and your clothes is you just go steal from those who have it. Um, and so when you tell them that, no, no, if, if, if you if you tax rich people, they're not going to be any rich people. And you're going to end up having to pay, and, and you're going to be hurt by this. And the, you know, the response you'll get is, "But then who was going to pay for my stuff?" Uh, they, they just completely over their head. Like this is, uh, you know, d- despite its informational nature and, and charts that you can read in the article, uh, it's entirely unnecessary because it serves uh, no purpose uh, for for those who, you know, uh, what's that old quote? For those who understand, no explanation is necessary. For those who don't understand, no explanation will do. This is the prime example of it. And so. So, you know, when people go like, well, why you guys are always just shouting taxation is theft and it's not even really theft, it's extortion, you know, so on and so forth. Why, why don't you guys come up with a comprehensive argument against it? Because uh, it doesn't matter. It do- doesn't matter at all. The, the, the arguments, the data is all out there. Um, and the people who still want their free stuff don't care to look at the evidence. And the people who have seen the evidence uh, n- already know. Um, you know, that the, the, the principle of the deal, uh, is more important than the, than the evidence, uh, supporting it, right? Like, you know, you can have all the good stories you want, um, to support it. Uh, but the, the facts remains that taxation is unnecessary, that it is extortion. It is theft. Um, and, uh, you know, even if it weren't, uh, you know, the, the, the people who you want to pay for it still aren't going to, because it's cheaper for them to bribe politicians than it is for them to actually pay the taxes. And so who gets stuck holding the bag down the line? You, because you already can't afford it, um, and they're not going to pay for it. Moving on. Headline, occupational licensing, an unnecessary evil. Occupational licensing comes under the guise of protecting the consumer from poor quality service. Professions that require licensing in the U.S. include nursing, law, dentistry, teaching, accounting, psychology, engineering, and architecture, among many others. This is to ensure that the service received is of a satisfactory standard. Occupational licensing restricts the supply of labor. Not everyone will pass the examinations or bother trying, therefore reducing potential supply. As the supply of labor is reduced, the price of their services will increase. An Obama White House report concluded that the evidence on licensing effects on prices is unequivocal. Many studies find that the more restrictive licensing laws leads to higher prices for consumers. Needless licensure. Protecting the consumer is one thing, but restricting competition is another. Licensure may be plausible in fields such as surgeons, doctors, or gas technicians, but what about markets such as ballroom dancers and interior designers? Lawmakers in Florida aimed to remove regulations on such jobs, but faced industry opposition that eventually killed the reform. The baffling occupational licensing doesn't end in Florida. In Tennessee, you have to have a high school diploma to become a barber, while upholsterers need need a license in 10 U.S. states. Do occupational licenses truly protect the consumer? There is a case to be made for industries that impact on health of the customer, but not for barbers and dance teachers. Occupational licensure is not driven by the general public, but rather the business that they regulate. A barber is able to charge higher prices if the local competition is closed because its staff doesn't have a high school diplomas. 
It reduces competition and is exactly what businesses want. Is the consumer truly protected? There is a case for licensure and occupation such as surgeons and doctors, but does it benefit the consumer? Well, if you're going for surgery, you definitely want the best and most qualified surgeon there is. Licensure is a way to guarantee quality. Or is it? There is no guaranteeing the quality of service of a qualified professional. What force is there to ensure continued competency? What better way of reducing the competence of members by also reducing the level of competition? When there is a shortage of doctors, they don't have to compete. If there's no competition, there is less incentive to provide a high-quality service. Is the consumer really protected? Surely, if the entry requirements are strict, only the best will qualify. That may be the case, but this also restricts the supply. This inevitably leads to rationing. In the case of doctors, it means their time has to be divided. Rather than being able to spend 20 minutes with a patient, they are restricted to 5 minutes. While doctors may be more competent, they are put under greater pressure. In the UK, for example, local doctors have around 5 to 10 minutes per patient, but are frequently behind schedule. The result is that patients are rushed through with poor quality service. At a cost. As a result of lower supply and higher cost of entry, prices are increased. There are fewer professionals to choose from meaning there is less competitive pressures to reduce prices. We must also consider the additional cost to undertake the testing and other requirements to obtain a license. All in all, there is an upward pressure on prices. This removes consumers from the market. In dentistry, for example, Kleiner and Cudrell in 2000 uh, found that restrictive licensing raised prices for consumers and earnings of dentists. They estimated that a state that increased from low to medium to high restrictiveness could expect an 11% increase in prices. Higher prices subsequently reduces demand. If the prices of a general checkup is too high, many will go without. This doesn't benefit the population as what could have been a simple service becomes a complex job. A simple filling could turn into a root canal job, so rather than protecting the consumer, it can actually make the situation worse. The same can occur if there is a gas leak. The consumer may be reluctant to call a technician due to the high price, but this reluctance may result in carbon monoxide poisoning. Limited flexibility. Each state has different licensing regulations. If you are practicing law in Florida, you need a new license to work in California. As a result, the labor force becomes less flexible to the demands of the market. Moving from one state to another requires the professional to go through the whole procedure again. This can be expensive and time-consuming, which can put many off relocating. Furthermore, regulations vary between states, with some having stricter requirements than others. An individual that can pass regulatory requirements in New Hampshire may not be able to in New York. The, this only further reduces the ability of perfectly able individuals to move. Analysis by the Hamilton Project at Brookings confirms this. They compared certified workers against licensed workers and found there was significantly less movement within the occupational licensed professions. Needless regulation. <clears throat> the number of jobs that require an occupational license now covers 30% of the U.S. workforce, up from 5% in 1950. There are now professions that are needlessly protected by licensure, which cannot be defended on the protect-the-consumer basis. In fact, there are professions that have a stricter regulatory requirement than, ev than even emergency medical technicians. For example, Arkansas and Michigan require EMTs to have 28 days' worth of education experience alongside two exams. By comparison, a cosmetologist requires 350 days of education experience and two exams. Even a painting contractor in Arkansas requires 1,825 days' experience and education and one exam.
The fact that nearly one in three need government permission to practice their profession is ludicrous. The first step should at least be to remove the licensure rules in markets where the consumer's health could not be conceivably at risk. Politically speaking, this would be the easiest step. End of the article. Apparently, this week I lined up a bunch of practical and pragmatic articles uh, for whatever reason. That's best that I could find. Curated for you. Uh, but this is another one where, yeah, uh, step in the right direction, maybe, but not far enough. Right. I don't uh, the, the professions that I choose to go into uh, avoid the licensure aspect of it. Uh, because I don't, I don't, I don't want to get the permission slip. I just, I want to show up, do my job and then leave. And that's all I want to do. I, I don't want to have to go this, um, at all. And, uh, even though the article says a case can be made for licensure in certain areas, um, on this show, and at least I, uh, believe that the market will provide, ah, um, in so far as I don't think licensure should be required at all for anything, um, but if you you know if you're going to a doctor and you want to make sure that he's qualified, uh, qualified and certified um, can be covered differently than licensure. And I'm sure I don't I don't think anyone's going to go to some you know hack doctor that just puts his diploma up on the wall from some know nothing um, university or or fake university or you know online university. Uh, not that those are fake, but you know what I'm saying. Um, and, and get the customers and the clients, uh, that you would get if you were, you know, graduated from a more prestigious university and had all your credentials in order and went through certifications and had like a reputation, uh, built behind you. Right. Same with, uh, hospitals and larger practices, right? The, the hospitals are going to look at the qualifications of the surgeons and the nurses and whatnot before hiring them to make sure that they, uh, that they have the skills and intelligence and information necessary to perform their jobs. Um, not just that they, you know, showed up on and lied on a resume, right? And said, Oh no, no, I've done, I've done this before. Um, they're going to do their due, due diligence to make sure that, you know, they're, of quality work, um, for the consumers. So even in the health related fields, right, the, the, the part that could harm consumers, um, I still wouldn't want to see government interference, uh, in, in occupational licensing or, or occupational or the ability for people to work, I guess is what I'm getting at, you know, just, just get the hell out of the way and let the, let the larger organizations do it. And if the, you know, if a, if a doctor is a quack and you know you're poor uh or you make poor choices i should say and you go to him without doing your due diligence um and you somehow are harmed by it uh well then you know even without government interference you should be able to be uh restituted for the harm done and it would be a ding on his reputation i would hope uh, or i believe that he would have, he would struggle getting business in the future, right? For, for all these professions, uh, if you, if you harm your customer and word gets out, right? Oh, what happened? You know, what happened with that doctor? Oh, well, too many people got sick under his care or, or remain sick under his care or were harmed under his care. No one's going to go to him. So even, you know, even in a short period of time, the, the quacks will filter themselves out, uh, in the market because again, without their, without certifications, uh, and, you know, and information telling you like credentials, I guess, uh, 
non-licensure credentials, uh, they wouldn't be able to get the clients needed to sustain their business. Uh, so when, when you have that going for you uh, behind it, um, you can see a world in which the licensure doesn't matter, the giving money to the state for permission to work doesn't matter, is if you have the skills and you have the, uh, the knowledge to do the job, um, that's all that matters. Right. And, you know, I, I, I'm so against this uh, semi related. Um, but for one of my jobs, I took they they did like CPR training. Um, and I went through all the training required, you know, to, to be CPR, um, certified or whatever. And I just, I just declined to fill out the forms. Right. I had the information. I don't need, I don't need, I didn't need the certification. I wasn't going to be going into the medical field. Um, and I didn't want to get caught up, um, in, in, in the bureaucracy of paperwork to say like, Oh no, he's CPR certified by the, you know, state of Hawaii or whatever. Like I didn't care. I don't, I don't want, I don't want it. Um, you know, and, and I want the option to choose who I save, right? Like if, if my good friend of mine is dying, well, guess who knows CPR? I do. So could I, could I, could I use those skills on him? Yes, I can. Um, but if someone I don't like is dying, I just I just let them die. I feel no I feel no compulsion as a as a certified CPR person to to, to perform it on him. I just don't I just don't care. Um, and I didn't want to get you know roped into some you know good Samaritan law that exists without uh, my knowledge or consent, saying that if if you know it, you must perform it or or something like that, or if you're certified, you must uh, do something like that. So I just I don't I don't need it. I, I obtained the skills um, to get the job done, and I utilized those skills to get the job done, and that's the extent of it for me. Uh, and again, like you know, the article says, um, the other you know the reasons behind it are are numerous, um, and I don't I you know the prices should fall, right? The the reason that you pay more is again just just the restrict, restricted supply. And now with the push for single payer health care um, and, and, you know, and universal health care for all and Medicare, Medicaid and whatever it is for all, um, you can imagine what that's going to do um, when everyone is going to, you know, have medical care or medical insurance or whatever uh, to the existing doctors uh, who are going to be forced to treat all these additional patients coming in when they haven't opened up the supply side of it to get more doctors to see all these new patients coming in. And the prices can't go up, right? So less doctors are going to, you know, move into the field and you'll see lower quality, less less doctors and lower quality going into the future as well. Um, so bad news all the way around. Just let people who have the skills demonstrate those skills uh, and, and get paid well for those skills. And those that can't, let them try. Let them try. Let them fail. Uh, and let them restitute any harm that they do in that process. And, you know, because, you know, if you have to if you have to pay back the damage you do, um, you may not want to pretend to be able to do something you can't. Uh, but let, let them. Right. Like, let's see. Let's see what happens. You know, the, the big old social experiment. Moving on. The Jevons paradox and the New Deal. I think this is going to be another one where it's. Uh, more pragmatic and practical than anything else. Climate change is real. Oh, see, there we go. Uh, and using the term, I'll just, I'll just cut in right now. Using the term climate change uh, is hard to get any pushback on, right? Because it's not warming, it's not cooling, it's just changing. Uh, and 
And sure, we can agree to that, but I don't think that's the narrative that's always being pushed. Um, Climate change is real, and its impact is demonstrable at local levels, if not on a global scale. While there are arguments about the severity of climate change and humanity's role in causing it, one thing is indisputable. Approaches toward mitigation should be taken. I'll oh, see, I'm going to break in again. I'm just going to disagree with that right there. Like what, what needs to be mitigated if the climate is always changing for the history and life of the earth? We ought not take steps uh, to, toward the natural progression of things um, if, it's, if it's on a natural course. Right. If, if the climate is always in flux right by the, you know, the, the heating periods and the ice ages and all that, um, you just you do what you can um, to mitigate your circumstances while you're here on the planet. Right. In, in, in a time of cooling, uh, you find ways to shelter and warm and survive uh, whatever ice age may bring you. And in times of heat, uh, just the opposite. You find ways to, to cool and, and not get uh, and not be outside as much during the, the heat storms and the wind storms and whatever. Um, but trying to trying to uh, alter the entire climate uh, based on the natural the the natural cyclical nature of. Uh, of the earth and of, you know, of the cosmos, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, is, is folly. Uh, however, it's an idea better off in the compost heap. The environmental goals of HRES 109, known as the Green New Deal, miss out on the fact that green energy isn't all green. Cheap energy has other costs, and the underlying issue of energy may be more about the supply rather than the type demanded. The real cost of green energy is rare earth metals. Ooh. The Green New Deal calls for clean, renewable, and zero-emission energy sources, which would be great if such energy was easy to come by. Many renewable sources, such as solar and wind, aren't as green as most of us were taught. Many of these renewables rely on rare earth metals. These metals are often difficult to find in any great deposits and can be incredibly environmentally destructive to extract. Jasper Burns, the managing editor of Commune, writes, Nearly every renewable energy source depends on non-renewable and frequently hard-to-access minerals. Solar panels use indium, turbines use neodymium, uh, batteries use lithium, and all require kilotons of steel, tin, silver, and copper. Worse yet, a scientific study supported by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure notes that the shortage of exploitable rare earth ore deposits makes a transition to renewables infeasible. And that's just for the Netherlands. The Green New Deal's renewable energy plant also misses out on other costs of going green. The ghost of Jevons. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez may hold a degree in economics, but she missed out on environmental economics and it shows. As energy becomes cheaper, demand for it tends to increase. The Energy Information Administration shows that increases increased efficiency, man, the Energy Information Administration shows that increased efficiency and lowered cost often increase demand for one energy source over another. Increasing demand and use leads to William Jevons. <clears throat> At the age of 29, William Stanley Jevons published his seminal work, The Coal Question. He also did a book on logic, uh, which I, I own and is also a, a a eh, fairly good read if you if you want to get into that the coal question which greatly influenced the field of environmental economics in this book jevons noted the that improvements in fuel or energy efficiency tend to increase rather than decrease usage 
Jevons wrote, It is a confusion of ideas to suppose that the economical use of fuel is equivalent to diminished consumption. The very contrary is the truth. The Jevons paradox has led to what David Owen, longtime environmental reporter at the New York at the New Yorker, calls the efficiency dilemma. More efficient goods are those that are cheaper, larger, and use less electricity, all of which are net positives. However, this can lead to increased consumption that often cancels out the benefits of the initial energy savings or efficiency. Plan for the future. The Green New Deal is the very image of an Ouroboros, the serpent eating its own tail. In the march for a green future, among the many other things thrown in the proposed bill of the Green New Deal comes a rank-and-file group of young progressives and environmentalists who are well-intentioned but miss the ill effects of their focus. The Jevons paradox and rare earth metals may be dismissed as minutia in the overall goal of curbing climate change, but their importance is understated. The fear behind the threat of climate change is often wielded like a cudgel to force legislation or silence debate. However, there are many alternatives to the proposed legislation which is neither green nor new nor much of a deal. Barriers to alternative energy and a market-based environmental approach to climate change are found at all levels of government. The Institute for Local Self-Reliance found it in found in its 2018 scorecard that 21 states were failing in policy to enable a more open energy market. Instead of maintaining a centralized grid system, it should be decentralized, which would give consumers greater ability to choose providers and remove additional obstacles to innovation and implementation of renewable energy resources. The Federal Energy Regulation Committee boasts of its market oversight and has enabled a group of five people to largely instill their personal values over the entire energy industry. Giving this organization further power under a Green New Deal would only further stymie market solutions towards innovative, renewable solutions. The best way to counter the Jevons paradox is to plan for the future and adjust accordingly, not just engage in public works to build an idea of one. Uh, End of the article. It's amazing, uh, not that Jevons paradox isn't uh, standing on its own, uh, but it's amazing how well... The, that which is seen and unseen by Bastiat stands the test of time um, in all, all aspects of government interference, right? And you go like, well, we, we have to have this Green New Deal um, and we're going to stop using, you know, uh, f- coal and fossil fuels and, and whatnot for energy. And then you go like, well, keep going. Like what's the what's the implication of that? Uh, and as it turns out, you know, all the renewable resources require also rare earth. You know, according to the article, rare earth minerals and other uh, hard to come by. Uh, basically, the definition of the term rare uh, materials uh, to to build. And you know, the implication of that is it does more damage to the earth to acquire um, these materials uh, than it would than it would just to keep using what we're using for now, right? Um, I remember environmental economics um and this is it, it, it was a weird time because it was one of those things where the the professors said i think i shared this before the professor shared more um by what he didn't cover in the book than by what he actually taught in the book like i don't think he believed so much in what the book was teaching us as students um so i learned more from his his commentary on the contrary and he was one of those professors that seemingly uh, was old and wise enough to know this. 
Um, so, we're, you know, we're talking about environmental economics and, and energy and the shift to renewable energy. And it goes, well, at some point, uh, the, the cost will catch up and, you know, you, the, the last barrel of oil will be so expensive um, because it's the last one um, that long before we ever get to that point, uh, we'll have shifted to something more economically efficient, right? Uh, and so we'll never, we'll never, never, ever, ever run out of oil. And I go, well, what else will we use? Well, who knows, right? You know, uh, uh, solar, wind, hydrogen, you know, other natural gases, who knows? Uh, but whatever it is, um, when it, when, when extraction of oil becomes prohibitive, uh, and, and cost prohibitive, uh, to the, to the producers, right. They will invest and research and figure out other ways to, to create energy, uh, and the problem, again, with the, the, the current path of things is not so much that we are moving uh, to alternative energies, which is fine. Um, it's that the cost associated with it, because it's government subsidized, is artificially low, right? It should not be that cheap uh, to extract all those rare earth minerals and, and uh, silver and copper and uh, whatever other, you know, whatever else the materials the article said, and provide uh, that you know, and provide the, the tools required to extract that energy uh, at such a cheap cost. It's mostly uh, government interference into that market. And so what, you know, so what, what needs to be done to, for that to equilibrate um, is you get the government out of it and, and you let the natural course, the natural progression of things take place, right? At some point, will it, will it equal out and will it be cheaper to extract those uh, minerals and ores and, and whatnot from the ground than it is to extract the, the, the gas? Maybe, um, but maybe this is the wrong path altogether uh, being subsidized by stupid politicians. Maybe there is a third way or a fourth way or a fifth way or an infinite other number of ways uh, that we that research would be put into uh, if government weren't subsidizing one specific way to do it. Uh, and it's those uh, those paths to renewable energy or to more efficient energy sources that we're currently not taking. Um, and if and when the time comes where we're not only out of uh, coal and fossil fuels and uh, all these minerals and ores that are required to, to make the solar panels and whatnot, um, that we're so far behind the curve uh, on the research necessary to provide real sustainable renewable energies um, that it's going to take, you know, decades or more to catch up. And, and then what, right? What will, what will they do then now that they've mucked it up? You know, then, then do, do we go nuclear, right? Cause that was, that was a thing that we're 50 years behind the curve uh, on, on nuclear development because people are too afraid uh, of, you know, of well, the fallout, um, but of what could go wrong that they, no one's actually looking at, well, what would 50 years of research have done to make it go right? Right. If you did it outside of populated areas and you, and you did all this to make sure that it was clean, clean nuclear fuel and, you know, protected and, you know, put the put the power stations away from populated areas. And so even if there's something wrong, it doesn't you know seep into the you know soil for, like you, you, you mitigate this, you plan around it, you plan against it. Um, and yet no one wants to do it because of fear. Right. They saw the nuclear bomb. They saw uh, was it? Uh, oh, man, I can't. Well, they they all the other uh, meltdowns that have happened and they, they, they're just worried, right? Like even the most recent one, like Fukushima, right? Like that happened um, and it was bad. Uh, but where, where are the, like we, there, we have yet to experience the, the um, 
catastrophic casualties, right? The apocalyptic casualties uh, that would make that um, that we would have expected to, you know, to see if if a nuclear meltdown was going to like destroy the planet, right? We we we're not even there yet with that one. Imagine if they had fifty more years of development um, behind it, uh, you know, because it wasn't stymied. How 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 much further along the line we would be uh, to protect against that? All right, uh, I'm running short on time, so I'm gonna do one more here, and then we'll wrap it up. And I think I'm just gonna read this one. Uh, as is, because it it might push us to the end of the time. Um, so it might go without commentary. The fear mongers are wrong about artificial intelligence and robots. Of course they are. Of course they are. Everyone always is, especially when it comes to, again, government interference. Thanks to a recent effort, such, such, wow, man, starting again. Thanks to the recent efforts of such figures as Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang and British shadow chancellor John McDonnell, the issue of universal basic income has been back at the forefront of the public discussion on economic issues, along with the various arguments and justifications for introducing such a policy. While many of these justifications have become quite familiar over the years of waxing and waning interest in UBI, it is interesting to note the recent surge of interest in one particular argument, which sounds more like something from a science fiction novel than an economics textbook. A familiar narrative with a twist. This argument runs through as follows. It is not too, in the not-too-distant future, rapidly advancing technology will allow robots and artificial intelligence to perform many of the jobs now being done by humans, and to do so more cheaply and efficiently than humans ever could. This will result in robots, AI, replacing humans in almost all jobs, making the vast majority of people permanently unemployed. And without universal basic income, how will they, the people, be able to keep food on their tables? Ooh, scary. Of course, the idea that advances in labor-saving technology will lead to catastrophic unemployment and declining living standards is hardly new. Arguably, dating back to ancient Greece or earlier, and economists, not to mention the facts of history, have been refuting the idea for nearly as long as economics has existed as a self-conscious science. However, as familiar as the generally Luddite ton of this tone of this new argument for UBI may seem on its surface, it nevertheless does have one key difference from the more traditional arguments against labor-saving technology. This difference not only sets the new AI scaremongering argument apart as meaningfully different than the arguments that have gone before, but it also highlights a fundamental misunderstanding its proponents suffer from concerning the very nature of what a market economy is and what drives it. What makes the AI scaremongering argument as new and meaningfully different is is its altered assumption about the breadth of different jobs the new technology would be capable of usurping from human workers. In previous eras, even the most hysterical denouncers of labor-saving technology shared an unspoken understanding of the limited capabilities of the te- technologies they opposed. When the spinning jenny was introduced in the 19... Uh, excuse me. In, in the 1760s, they may have argued that it would cause unemployment in the textile industry, but none of them would have claimed that the same machine would cause mass unemployment among butchers, lawyers, or pub landlords. When automobiles became widely available, they may have argued that the buggy whip manufacturers were at risk of permanent impoverishment, but few would have argued that the existence of cars posed an equal threat to jobs of teachers, waitresses, or doctors. However, given the near total lack of public understanding of what AI actually is and what it's capable of, not to mention the irresistible temptation to sensationalize modest scientific advances 
into eye-grabbing and alarmist headlines. The new AI scaremongers have allowed their imaginations to run wild with speculating as to which jobs are under threat from this mysterious new technology. The result is that they and much of the public seem to believe AI will be capable of almost anything it can imagine in the same way that so many charmingly naive 80s movies portrayed home computers as essentially omnipotent science magic. It is this assumption that AI and robots will soon be able to accomplish almost all jobs more cheaply and efficiently than humans that marks the new AI scaremongering argument as fundamentally different from the previous arguments against labor-saving technology. Economists had previously been able to argue that labor-saving technology frees up resources and lowers prices in a way that results in net quality of life improvements for society as a whole, creating new jobs and opening up new types of industry, even if it results in short-term unemployment for a small minority. But would that really still be the case if the new technology is capable of making human labor obsolete in all types of jobs? There are several objections one could make against this argument, not least of which being its dubious assumption about the capabilities of AI technology. However, the sign of a truly weak argument is not only a reliance on unrealistic assumptions, but a failure to stand up to scrutiny even when its assumptions are taken as a given. A fundamental misunderstanding of economics. Ain't that the truth about everything? Even if it were true that robots and AI could perform absolutely all jobs currently being done by humans and could do so more cheaply and efficiently than humans, the AI scaremongers would still be incorrect to conclude that robots and AI will replace humans in all or even most jobs. The source of their incorrect conclusion is the fundamental misunderstanding of what drives business activities in a market economy. Entrepreneurs are not driven by an arbitrary desire to pursue the most technologically advanced, the most efficient, or even the cheapest production process purely for the sake of it, as seems to be the assumption of the AI scaremongers and many other anti-capitalists. Rather, the fundamental driving force in a market economy is to direct and organize production in, a, in the way that best satisfies consumer preference. For evidence that this is true, driving force of the economy does not necessarily lead to increased reliance on technology, even if that technology would be more cheap or efficient in some objective sense. One need look no further than the sector in which human workers are already being replaced by robots of sorts. Readers who have visited a fast food chain, such, such as McDonald's in the past few years, have noticed an increasing number of self-service touchscreens, reducing the need for human staff to take orders. But if this technology exists and is already profitable use of these fast food chains, why hasn't it been adopted by all other restaurants? If the AI scaremongers believe robots and AI will necessarily replace all human workers when the former can perform the same job more cheaply and efficiently, how do they account for the fact that human waiters haven't already been replaced by self-service touchscreens at the Savory Grill or the Ritz? The absurdity of this question illuminates the fact that a, there is a, that a desire to satisfy consumer preference, not bear efficiency and cost-cutting, is the key motivator of entrepreneurial decision-making in a market economy. With a little thought, it is easy to imagine many services consumers might prefer to have provided to them by human staff, even if a machine were technically capable of providing the same service more cheaply. Nurses and care providers, entertainers, chefs, and teachers would likely fall into this category, as would many other jobs. Given the persistent popularity of UBI across the political spectrum, its advocates are unlikely to abandon any of their increasingly familiar arguments anytime soon. However, it seems unlikely that their new argument about AI-induced mass unemployment will turn out to be the silver bullet they were hoping for. End of the article.
and end of my time. So thank you very much for listening. You know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com, uh, minds.com slash the anarchist experience. And if you want to contribute to the show financially, Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash the anarchist experience. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll talk to you all next week. Peace.